Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Welcome to episode number 50. We have come a long way since January 2015 and have been working on some rather exceptional things for you. You can expect to hear some completely new kinds of content coming up soon. We also want to thank and welcome our newest member, Dan. We concluded our last episode by alluding to the powers of man that Louis Sullivan wrote of in his System of Architectural Ornament. The more closely we examine this work, the more we are stunned that it has been treated as no more than a picture book of architectural ornamentation. While Sullivan's buildings are rightly perceived as being radically divergent from the past, attempts by historians such as Carl Condit and Lewis Mumford to tie him to a so-called Second Chicago School that included the severely minimal expressionism of Mies van der Rohe, neglected to take note of the independent trail that Sullivan was blazing. The view that has since become canonical was that buildings such as the Carson Peary Scott department store were transitional beasts, changelings that, to paraphrase Hermann Mutesius, were ready to molt. And though critics could read into Sullivan's work the clean markers of structure that would later become so pervasive, a cursory inscription of his writing shows that this was most emphatically not the spirit in which he should be understood. Those who wished to admire both the organic manifestations of Sullivan and the machinic expressions of the international style were presented with an irreconcilable conflict. If what Sullivan had written was true, then later architects were bleeding their work white, draining it of vitality. If the high modernists were correct, then Sullivan should be consigned to memory as a beautiful fossil and nothing more. For the most part, the fossil path was chosen, and the exertion to see the continuous mullions and simple spandrels of Sullivan's work as a direct ancestor to Mises' steel and glass eye-beam is a bit of protesting too much. Sullivan's true revolutionary impact lay not in providing a starting point for the international style, but in doing the same for those in the late 20th century who would criticize it most effectively. And as we return with fresh eyes to his work, we see that, in an age where people claim that everything has been discovered, and that theory is dead, what Sullivan was catching on to is a field very much still under active development. As we all know, the early outcry of Sullivan's work and writing was that form ever follows function, 
What was this a response to? The Industrial Age had amplified man's physical powers in such a way that the intellectual, emotional, moral, and spiritual powers were shoved aside in the name of progress. For urban fabric, this meant city grids expanded outwards, regardless of how the land was shaped. San Francisco's and New York's street grid are two excellent examples. Cut down and through the hills when you can. Never mind that now the cloisters and the presidio are all that's left. New York would eventually tunnel underground for traffic. In San Francisco, they drove carts up hills so steep that the effort literally killed draft horses with heart attacks. But all this grief was in the name of progress, as the expense of buying new animals caused the cable car to be invented. Just as the landscapes and natural environments were violently disrupted, the dwellings of humans that had once fit in them were pushed up and out as well. The outward grid of the street was filled in with the upward grid of the steel skyscraper. Physical power was dominant, and imagination was barely able to keep pace. First, of course, came denial, the instinct to cover it all up, which gave us an era of caked-on facades. In a panic of pattern recognition, architects scoured history, picking the bones of whatever they could and gluing them to the newly gridded facades. These were the external manifestations that Sullivan reacted against. If one looks at what was actually happening, though, at how physical and financial power and prowess were racing well beyond imagination, the international style's response was a progression from facades of denial through Adolf Loos's anger into Walter Gropius's compromise from the Great Depression into post-war acceptance. Nowadays, the choice is to remain entrenched within this dislocation or to move beyond it. It is in this context that Sullivan's words provide us with a framework for reorientation. Our recent study of Paul Clay emphasized that in the early 20th century, there was a growing sense that mankind's understanding of how the self related to the world had changed radically. Indeed, to face the consequences of magnified physical power in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, it needed change, or would surrender to a market-ruled environment sidelining an increasingly isolated ego. While humans within indigenous cultures outside the umbrella of modernity had long since been mowed over by this new physical power, by the 19th century 
the canaries in the coal mines began to sound warning notes, even within the most privileged parts of Europe. Eventually, the monopoly of physical power could threaten the survival of everyone. Aesthetes and Bohemians sensed an increasing dullness, a numbness. Fidelity to industry had become more vital than connecting to others, and it is in that circumstance that a host of political, economic, and environmental threats to human survival lie. What Clay had been positing in 1922 was the fundamental change in orientation that is required to address any one of these problems. Namely, that the self is not a separate entity from the environment. Power is not external to the self, and the effects of this power are not applied to anything external. Everything is held within nested reciprocal loops. Sullivan had independently arrived at this idea of not-separateness. He wrote of man's powers as originating and contained within himself, that is, as not given from without or from above through any process of magic, benevolence, dispensation, or special selective choice. In other words, it is desired to be understood that such powers are natural. But what was this power? Essentially, it was sympathy as manifest, the platonic cora, a bridge between thought and shared physicality. Sympathy implies exquisite vision, the power to receive as well as to give, a power to enter into communion with living and with lifeless things, to enter into a unison with nature's powers and processes, to observe in a fusion of identities life everywhere at work ceaselessly, silently, abysmal in meaning, mystical in its creative urge in myriad pollulation of identities and their outward forms. So this sympathy, this recognition of the ego not being restricted within the individual, allows mankind to participate in the creation of the environment, to become a co-creator. As Clay concluded in the essay on nature study, which we discussed at length in episodes 42 through 46, man creates then a work, or involves himself in works, which bear resemblance to the works of God.
This is, then, the aim of the study of forms, to bring one's self into alignment with the truly natural, thereby elevating what one brings into the world. Imperative to this sympathy is Sullivan's emphasis that the powers are internal. These are not skills to be sold, but traits to be awakened. His design elements are not atomistic formulations that are to be imitated. Sympathy is a door to unlocking the powers of elevated creation. And while Sullivan sees power as a unitary quality, he acknowledges that it has various aspects, some of which can cause difficulty if used out of balance with the others. We have already touched on these briefly here. Sullivan puts the powers of man into several groups. Physical, intellectual, emotional, moral, and spiritual. The physical powers get the shortest shrift. Sullivan rightly assumes that we are familiar with them. The intellectual group is also fairly well-worn in Western society, though often in the service of the physical powers. In agreement with Socrates' observation that wisdom begins in wonder, he gathers that the intellectual group starts in the power of curiosity and ends in highly sophisticated manipulation. The emotional group is where our culture starts to falter. Ever since the time of Freud, this shabby threshold has been apparent, and by and large there has not been much progress made. Sullivan writes that, it is of instinct. It is the great power that moves the people of the world, even as they are busy denying it, even as they exalt intellect to the rank of fetish. One need only look at politics to see how denial of the emotional still leads us astray. Awareness of the self and other within the environment is chiefly what emotions are sensitive to, and specifically what our current world systematically denies. How much of architecture even acknowledges emotion? To bring this aspect into balance, there is a lot of work to be done. The moral group of powers keeps the emotional group in equilibrium. Sullivan calls it much misunderstood and claims that it is a steadying rather than restricting power. Though he does not mention it, this is less like puritanical stricture and more like the Egyptian idea of ma'at, or divine justice. Within this realm, agency and choice is called out as the essential. Group 5 is the spiritual powers, 
The spiritual group functions as a super quality in clarity of vision. It sees as in a dream. It feels as in the depths of instinct. While our summary here should not at all limit the scope or interpretation of these spiritual powers, they do appear to be a means of perception by which the greater whole can be seen. The individual is able to zoom out and see into dimensions beyond the self. Life is a dream within a greater dream, and man himself is a dreamer within the dream of life. Then, as in a dream spirit contemplates spirit, life contemplates life. Man contemplates man. This is the kernel of the new worldview, the new conception of self that steps beyond the old animated vessel model that had brought mankind up against the limitations of the machine age. It is by journey through craft in these powers that Sullivan says the last veil lifts. The reality man is found sound to the core, the quintessence of power, the dreamer of dreams, the creator of realities, the greatest of artificers, the master craftsman. Again, sympathy is the linchpin. Man is not so much the measure as he is the medium of all things. By mastery of this craft, matter may be transmuted into thought form, and thought form, whether sculpted from matter or conceived independently, may be suitably manifest in the physical. While Sullivan appears to have singular clarity in offering us these working tools, others also dreamed of a life beyond the familiar. Bruno Taut's architectural thoughts inhabited a world of living crystals, shimmering as outgrowths between the realms of the organic and the geological. Join us as we explore glass and alpine architecture, a utopia, next time on Lapsus Lima.